morning. Uh, my name is David Hershey. I, uh, my wife and I attend here for many years. Uh, I work in campus ministry over at Penn State Berks. And Pastor Tim is sick today. Although, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, he got sick during the first weekend of March Madness. But when he needed someone to, to step in and, and share this morning when he called me on Friday, I volunteered as tribute to be here <laughs> this morning. So let's keep Pastor Tim in our prayers. Hopefully he can uh, return next week on Easter. So maybe there's some symbolism there. I don't know. But uh, this morning, uh, welcome again to Koinos. And that uh, is a clip from the wildly popular movie based on the wildly popular book that I saw at least one person reading this morning, uh, not surprisingly a teenager, uh, The Hunger Games. And maybe you've seen it, maybe you've read the book, but uh, basically it takes place in this uh, dystopian, sort of not-too-distant future of, uh, of our world, America, but they don't call it America in, in the book, they call it Panem. And in the, before the story started, many years before that video kind of alluded to, there was uh, a civil a, a war between the capital, the capital that rules over the, the districts. And after the capital, the evil villainous capital led by an evil villainous president, uh, managed to defeat the, the districts in the Civil War, as punishment for their rebellion, they instituted the Hunger Games. And every year, each of the 12 districts would have to send one young boy and one young girl between the ages of, I think, like 11 and 17 or something. And... Uh, these children, 24 of them, would be put into some sort of arena where they would fight to the death. This was something that would be seen as, as a reminder of the capital's forgiveness because the winner, the one boy or girl left standing, would be praised and honored and celebrated. But then the 23 who die is a reminder, don't mess with the capital or your children will pay the price. So in this scene, they're choosing the, the, the representatives, the tributes from District 12. And District 12 is the poorest of all the districts. Even in the story, it talks about how some of the districts kind of embrace the Hunger Games and they'll train their children, kind of like the Spartans in the ancient world from, from a very young age in the art of war. And kids in these districts will volunteer and will actually they'll want to go and fight seeking that, that honor. But District 12 is the poorest of the districts, and they never win. Basically, to be chosen from District 12 is to be chosen to die. You have no chance. You're going to be one of the 23 that, that loses. So when Prim is chosen, and she's like very young, you can tell from the clip, it's, it's a death sentence. But then her sister Katniss steps up and volunteers herself to go, and really, in essence, to die in her sister's place. Of course, she is played by Jennifer Lawrence, so you know that there's more to the story than simply her dying. But stories like this, stories of self-sacrifice, no matter what happens in the rest of the movie, this, this, this idea of a person like stepping in to take the place of another person, that's powerful. I mean, I could go through just movies and books that I enjoy, and I started to think of some of my favorites of all time, and they all have this, many of them have this theme of someone in some way giving themselves up for someone else. As, as a Christian, this maybe shouldn't be surprising to me, because uh, 
the center of our faith is Jesus Christ giving himself up in the, in the real world. So all these kind of made-up stories maybe point to that real sacrifice. Uh, one of my favorite authors, you've probably heard of him, seen him quoted here on Sunday morning, C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a lot of stuff. He wrote some uh, children's books, fantasy literature. And the first one in the series was called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this story, uh, again, you have the self-sacrifice of Aslan the Lion. But C.S. Lewis in his life, he, he was an atheist for many years, lived his life as an atheist. And he eventually kind of journeyed from atheism to, to believing in God to becoming a Christian. And he talks about that, that progression in his life and some of the things that really uh, impacted him and helped him in that. And what he came to realize was that as someone who loved ancient literature and mythology and some of these great stories, he came to see that the story of Jesus was the story that all the other stories were pointing to. He called it the true myth, where all these other stories were made up and they point to this one where it really happened. He says in in one of his writings, uh, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened and one must be content to accept it in the same way. Remembering that it is God's myth where the others are men's myths, i.e. the pagan stories are God expressing himself through the minds of poets using such images as he found there, while Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things. So we read these other stories, whether ancient literature or, or the Hunger Games or Harry Potter or whatever your flavor might be, and we see these stories of people that sacrifice themselves, but they're obviously just made up. Jesus, the story of Jesus giving himself up on the cross, is the real thing to which all these other stories are pointing us to. And if you've been with us here on Sunday morning for the last couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Tim has been talking, taking us through uh, the story of Jesus as told by the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to come into the Gospel of Mark now in about... So we've seen uh, throughout the story Jesus doing his teaching and setting himself on the road to go to the city of Jerusalem. And we pick up the story in Mark 11 with Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem on the Sunday, Palm Sunday, if you go to a traditional church growing up, you might have heard about Palm Sunday, that's actually today, uh, in the week leading up to his, his death on the cross. So Mark 11 says, uh, and starting in verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, the Jewish people back in those days, in the time of Jesus, were living under the powerful rule of the Roman Empire, kind of like the capital in the Hunger Games, if you will. And like the people of District 12, I'm going to see how long I can carry this metaphor. Um, like the people in District 12, uh, the Jewish people in Jesus' day, they yearned for someone to come and save them. They were waiting for uh, a savior or a liberator or someone who could free them from the Roman armies, the Roman emperor, the Roman governor, and the people that were just ruling over their, their land. And every year on Passover the, was a Jewish holiday when they would look back into their history and they would remember when their ancestors 
were slaves in Egypt. And if you remember the story, they were slaves in Egypt, but God sent Moses and God used mighty acts and mighty deeds and brought them out of Egypt in a powerful way. And as they remembered what God had done for them in the past, they looked and hoped for God to do that again, to show up and do it in the future. So especially at Passover, tensions were high. People were waiting for someone to come and say, this is it, God's showing up, follow me to freedom. Jesus enters Jerusalem into this situation. And it's likely that many of the people in Jerusalem had heard of Jesus, if not gone out into the country to see Jesus. Jesus had been preaching in his ministry that the kingdom of God was coming. And if the kingdom of God is coming, that means the kingdom of Rome is leaving. That's, that's treason. That's sedition. That's saying that the government that is currently in power is done. Follow me. We're going to start a new government. So Jesus enters Jerusalem into a situation where the Roman Empire is ready to squelch any rebellion, have any hint of it. And he enters Jerusalem being praised as, as a king. The people praising him, they're thinking that this is, this is it. This is the victory. This is the time. We're going we're gonna to get rid of these Romans. We're going to have freedom on our own. But what's amazing, if you read the stories of Jesus and like the Gospel of Mark, is that Jesus knows what is really going to happen. He even told his disciples what was going to happen not that long ago. In, the, in, in Mark, he mentions it at least, I think, three times. In Mark 10, he says, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hang him, hand him over to the Gentiles, over to the Romans, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus told them that when they go to Jerusalem, it's not going to be fun, victory, game, celebration. It's going to be torture, flogging, whipping, death, crucifixion. But there's no indication they really had any category to even understand what he was saying. Because in their mind, kingdom of God does not equal death on a cross. So if we were to continue reading then in Mark 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He goes into the temple of, the, of Judaism, the center of like Jewish religion and culture and their world, really. And he really just makes a scene. He sends out some money changers, any animals that are there. Uh, kind of goes crazy. And this act in the temple where he drives out, makes this scene, is really the trigger that sets the Jewish religious leaders against him and causes them to move to talk to the Romans, to conspire, to kill Jesus. So we could almost say that it's not just that Jesus knows what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. He kind of instigates it and makes it happen when he gets to Jerusalem. So a few days later, we could... Read the rest of the story in Mark 15, when Jesus is crucified. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So if you were there on that day in that moment, on that hillside, and you saw this man suffering and bleeding and dying on a cross, your only conclusion would be, that guy's a loser. He's a failure. He's not the king. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. Crucifixion was, was Rome's way of not just killing you, but totally and abjectly humiliating you. Hanging you up naked, letting you die slowly as you could eventually just not be able to lift yourself up on the cross to breathe anymore. And the Romans used this a lot. Uh, About 100 years before Jesus, there was a slave named Spartacus who led a slave revolt. He eventually got about 70,000 slaves to march in his army, and they they defeated, they won some victories against actual Roman armies. But when the Romans finally defeated them, they actually crucified 6,000 of the slaves from the slave army on the the road to Rome. As a warning, so you're a slave, you're going to Rome on business, and every, for miles and miles, it's just dead, rotting body, dead, rotting body, dead, rotting body. The message is, don't mess with Rome, or that's where you're going to end up too. About 40 years after Jesus, his countrymen, the Jews, actually did rebel against the Roman Empire. And eventually Rome managed to win. They put the city of Jerusalem under siege so nobody could leave. And in an effort to crush the hopes of the fighters inside Jerusalem, they began crucifying prisoners they had outside the walls. One historian says they crucified 500 a day until they couldn't find wood to crucify anyone else. Again, don't mess with us or that's where you end up. Winners do not get crucified. Losers and failures do. Yet here we are. Thousands of years later, singing songs about the beauty of the cross. Some people wear crosses around their neck. We call Friday, Good Friday, the day Jesus died. The cross has become, for for billions of Christians, not a symbol of failure and and loss, but a symbol of, of victory, of beauty. Now the reason for this, or a big reason for this, of course, is, is that Jesus on the third day, Easter Sunday, rises from the dead. His death is not the end of his story. By crucifying him, the the leaders, the authorities, the powers were saying no to the way of Jesus. And God, by raising him from the dead, said yes. But to hear more about the resurrection, you have to come next week. So be sure to do that. We're going to stick with the depressing, hopefully not too depressing, talking about the cross. uh, I've been going to church in some form of church Pretty much my whole life. I mean, I think my earliest memories, or some of my earliest memories, are sitting in some sort of children's church learning about Jesus. I, I remember when I was, I don't know, four or five years old, being taught that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. 
It's one of the earliest things I remember learning and believing. And the church I grew up in uh, was big on memory verses. I remember memorizing John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believe... Well, we did King James back in, in, that, in those days. So it was like, believeth, we don't talk like that anymore, in him uh, shall not perish, but have... Oh, I may skip. One and only son, we said only begotten son back then, but that the word he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Just this, this teaching that if you, if you believe in Jesus... You'll have your sins forgiven, and you can go to heaven when you die. Another verse I remember learning in those days was Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's a lot of truth, obviously, there, of our sins being forgiven because of the cross and, and eternal life with God, of course. But I look back on some of that as an adult, and I'm a little skeptical of, some of the things that, some of the ways that they were taught us. Like, I don't think pressuring and trying to convince four-year-olds that they're awful, horrible sinners is the best way to go about Christian education. And for the record, if you're new here, we're not teaching the four-year-olds back there that. I'm glad, that's one of the reasons why I like my four-year-old coming here, because they're not, you know, demoralizing and manipulating them into conversions at such a young age. Another thing that, Eventually, maybe when I was a teenager in my 20s, when I was reading the Bible and thinking things through on my own more, when I look back on those early days, is that Jesus' death seemed to be taught solely as something to, to believe in. So you could get something out of it. Like, so you go to heaven when you die. And for this, it was, belief was basically assent. So you check off the box, you say you agree with Jesus, and you're led in. It's almost like the cross was kind of like the key to a room, and once you entered the room, you didn't really need the key anymore. You were already inside. So the cross got us in, but as far as living out your daily life as a Christian, the cross wasn't really necessarily relevant to that. So as I was reading and thinking some of these through, I'd say maybe like in my, again, early 20s, late teens, there were other passages about the cross that started to impact me. One of them was Jesus speaking in Mark chapter 8. To his disciples, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. As I read through Mark uh, 15 yesterday and Friday, trying to think of what to say this morning, this passage from Mark 8 just kept popping into my mind because you have Jesus saying to his disciples, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, and then some amount of time later, there's Jesus hanging on the cross. That's a very high calling. It's something that I'm sure the disciples were like, wow, I'm not so sure if I want to follow this guy anymore, if I'm going to end up there. Another passage is similar. One of Jesus' earliest followers in, in Philippians 2, 5, 8, 5 to 8 said, In your relationships with others, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you have this picture being painted of, of like God becoming human and then dying on the cross. And as mind-boggling as how that all works, the message is, in the way you interact with others, this is the model for how it should be. Lay aside your rights. Die for other people if that's where you need to go. That's 
not an easy thing. I think I'd rather be with the people on Sunday when Jesus enters Jerusalem thinking that Jesus is going to win some victories for us and give us some good stuff than the, the cross on Good Friday and saying that's where we're going to end up. And when you think about, when I think about these sorts of the high teaching of Jesus and, and the way he didn't just say it, but he actually lived on the cross and calls us to do the same, I think it's easy if you hang around with Christians enough, hang around with yourself enough if you are a Christian, I mean, I just think in my own experience, to become a little bit cynical. Like, do any of us really manage to come close to this? The German philosopher uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was definitely no friend of the Christian faith, uh, had this to say about Christians. The Christians have never practiced the actions Jesus prescribed to them. And the impudent, garrulous talk about justification by faith and its supreme and sole significance is only the consequence of the church's lack of courage and will to profess the works Jesus demanded. The Buddhist does not act like the non-Buddhist. The Christians acts all the world and has a Christianity of ceremonies and moods. So what Nietzsche's saying is that we say we want Jesus, but if we're honest, we just kind of want the good stuff that Jesus says we're going to get. Think again of my four-year-old self. Did I really want, I mean, if I understood it, did I even really want Jesus, or was it like the streets of gold that the pastor said I would get when I died? Which, again, a kind of horrible thought for a four-year-old thinking about death, but do you really want Jesus on the cross, or do we want all the good, good stuff that maybe we're promised in some sort of future? Or Nietzsche might say that we Christians, we're just as selfish, just as greedy, just as revengeful as anyone else. We just kind of hide it better or cloak it in. Eh, at least we're forgiven. So I think someone like Nietzsche and those criticisms like that, as Christians, it might be easy to try to fight back and, and argue against it. I think we shouldn't dismiss those criticisms too quickly. Because many of us, many of you, maybe you're here, someone here like this, who has had a horrible experience with, with church, and you re- hear that quote by Nietzsche, and you're just like, yep, those hypocritical Christians, they drug me here this morning, and this guy's preaching to the choir, you know. I think it's a challenge that any of us who claim to follow Jesus need to hear. But at the same time, it's one thing to cynically kind of tear down. It's another thing to say, what are you going to build up in its place? Because honestly, for me, as much as I think Nietzsche at times is on to something, I mean, I work at a college campus, Penn State Berks, with, with college students uh, doing, doing campus ministry. And part of me is amazed by the fact that anybody, while they're in college, wants anything to do with Jesus. Like, I'm just surprised when people show up on a regular basis to, to study the Bible. Not even, I mean, there's, there's good things they could be doing, like studying to get a better grades and get a better job. There's other more questionable things they could be doing, but there's a lot to be offered on a college campus. I see a lot of students who take up their cross and choose to sacrifice themselves, sacrifice things they could be doing to know Jesus better. Just uh, last week, um, we took, we had our spring break. Uh, the group I was with, I, I work with on campus, we took... 15 students to Detroit, Michigan to, to do a service project there. Uh, it's kind of funny when we told people we were going to Detroit for spring break, because those words probably had never been uttered in the same sentence before. Like, yeah, you must go to Penn State, geography, right, Detroit for spring break. But uh, Detroit, actually, in August of 2014, had uh, a lot of flooding. There was so much rain that the water treatment 
plant became overwhelmed and the water just backed up and all these people had water just flying out of their basements. So they were telling us, like, imagine you're sitting in your basement and all of a sudden, like, your toilet just explodes and water's coming out of it. That's what happened, what happened there. It was actually the worst natural disaster in, in the United States in 2014. So we went there and when I take this group of students there, and we've done it with people in this audience who, when they were at College of Penn State Berks, went on these trips. And it's, it's great to see people who, they could be doing a lot of stuff on their spring break. They could be uh, studying, working a job to make more money to pay for college, but they choose to set all that aside to go and to help people rebuild their homes, people that they've never known, to spend a week. And we have some students who are like really into construction, like you say we're going to go hang drywall for a week, and they're like, that's awesome. Then you have some students who are just like, we have students who are just terrified they're going to be able to survive the week. They're afraid they're going to like saw their arm off with a circular saw or something. So we have these students who are making the choice, though, to go and to serve others in ways that are not always comfortable. And on top of that, no offense to those, I know, again, some of you guys were here when we went to, like, New Orleans back in the day when it was Hurricane Katrina. And, sure, you go in spring break to serve others, but at least you're in New Orleans or, or Miami or somewhere warm. Like, these students this year who went to Detroit, I mean, that was, again, they're the ones that definitely love Jesus. No offense, Andrew and Dave and the rest of you from the best. But I see other people in my life. Like, I think of other people who, who I would say is people who have really self-sacrificed to serve others. Just this past uh, fall, uh, my grandmother passed away. And the, the pastor of the church I grew up in, not the one that I went to when I was very young, but the, the one I went to when I was, like, a teenager, uh, Pastor Jeff. I got to talk to him. He did my grandmother's funeral. And it was kind of weird to, like, I mean, I've talked to him a couple times over the years, but obviously when I was a teenager it was a different conversation than more as, as two adults. So it was a nice time to talk, and I was just asking about some people that were my age that I don't really keep in touch with and how they're doing, and some of the older people in the church and how they're doing, if they're still with us. But then I remember asking about uh, someone who I knew who's, there was a girl in the church who was roughly the same age as me, a little bit younger, and her, her stepdad committed suicide when I was in college. You know, we're at my grandmother's funeral, and, and it's one thing for a pastor like him to do the funeral of, of someone who's much older because, you know, my grandmother, it was sad, but we knew that it was kind of inevitable. But I asked him how it was to do the funeral of a man who committed suicide. And then I asked him, we were talking about, there was this other kid in the church who was probably about 10 years younger than me. So I was maybe, I didn't really know him very well. I think I was starting to maybe help with, with like, watching the kids or teaching Sunday school or something when he was very young. But 20 years later, when he was in his early 20s, I saw on Facebook with some mutual friends, he actually died in a car accident. And I read his obituary. He, I think he had been in the military for a while, and he had just gotten out, and he was starting to kind of just begin his life when he died in a car accident. And I just asked Pastor Jeff, I was like, I mean, what was it like? Because I have no conception of what that, I mean, I don't know how he could do that. And he was just like, yeah, it was, it was awful. I mean, parents crying, and what answers do you possibly give? And I think of someone like, like Pastor Jeff back home, why would he dedicate 30 years of his life serving in this pretty small church, not glamorous, being willing to sit with people when their families have, have died in horrible ways? The only answer I have for that is that he's someone who really sees hope in the cross and lives his life as a life of self-sacrifice for others. One of the reasons why I love coming to this church. My wife and I love coming here. Is I, we, I see the same thing here with, all, with you guys. I love when I go to pick up Eli and Junia 
back at Kid Street and just see their teachers, the, the, the nursery helpers, and, and the smiles on their faces. After a morning of being with the kids, they may be tired smiles, but still the smiles on the faces of the volunteers who have chosen to dedicate time to help these children be with these children, to just sit with them and play blocks with them in the nursery or to start to teach them the basics of Christian, Christian faith in, in the elementary school, that's self-sacrifice. I think I see it in, in the many of you who uh, serve in community groups and the way that every year we come together to serve in Burke's Women in Crisis and to go out there and hit the streets and to raise uh, all that uh, donations for, um, for Burke's Women in Crisis and all the other ways that we do things. I mean, sorry to, to Mr. Nietzsche, and yes, we are all hypocritical at some times, but I see a lot of self-sacrifice and hope in places like this. And the thing is, millions and millions of people have had their lives changed and have chosen for self-sacrifice because of what Jesus did. Emperor Napoleon was the, he conquered like all of Europe back in the 1800s, the Emperor of France, a very, if you're someone like history, very well-known person, kind of changed the dynamic of how Europe was and changed the map and everything. But after a while, he was defeated in battle. He was sent into exile on a small island in the Atlantic Ocean where he spent the last 15 or so years of his life just waiting to die, ruled over by the British. And he had a lot of visitors would come and talk to him because he was the most famous person who had lived in that era. Everybody knew who Napoleon was. So he's had a lot of conversations. And it's reported in one of these conversations, he said, Well, then, I will tell you, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions will die for him. What Napoleon was saying is that, yeah, I've done a lot. I've sent armies into battle. I've killed a lot of the other guy, not as many as they, or more than they, I've killed more of them than they killed of me, which is why I won a lot of victories. Build a big empire, but compared to Jesus and what he did through love, shown on the cross, and that's still here. I mean, some of you may not even have heard of Napoleon, depending where he went to. He went to Penn State uh, or somewhere else. But uh, we all know Jesus. Even if you don't know Jesus, we set our clock by, our time by where he, his life so when I think about the cross now, I kind of take some of those things I learned in those earliest days of my life in, in the church. John 3.16, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I take some of the other things I, I learned more as I was growing up, and I would put it all together and say this morning that if I was to try to summarize what the cross means for me, I would say the cross is unconditional, liberating love frees us to love others. So we have that aspect of, of unconditional, liberal, demonstrate on the cross, frees us to love others. I knew I'd add a few words in there. Unconditional love, liberating love, demonstrated on the cross, frees us to love others. We have this unconditional love, this idea that Jesus on the cross, as Christians, I believe we can't like earn our way to God. This is something that I was taught from when I was very young, and I would still believe it today. The teaching of Jesus is that you can't like work really hard and get God to like you. But that love is shown on the cross, that God comes to us, Jesus dies on the cross for us as an act of love. Another word for that would be grace. And all we can do is open, Jesus opens his arms on the cross, and all we can do is open our arms in return and accept it. At the same time, there is that high call 
that Jesus offers us to take up our cross, lay down our lives, and follow him. It's an extremely difficult call, which, if you're like me, on our best days, we might do halfway decently, and on our worst days, we probably don't look any different than anyone else in the world. But it's still a very high call. Another way to summarize the message of Jesus on the cross might simply be when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the Old Testament was. And he said, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So the message of the cross might be God loves you, so love God in return, and then go ahead and love others. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, but again, you have to come next week for that, a whole new world came into being. Uh, M. Scott Peck has a great quote that I, that I found yesterday. Uh, he says, The only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human being. When it is absorbed there, like blood in a sponge or a spear into one's heart, it loses its power and goes no further. The healing of evil, scientifically or otherwise, can be accomplished only by the love of individuals. A willing sacrifice is required. Whenever this happens, there is a slight shift in the balance of power in the world. So what he's saying is that when we're confronted with evil, the only way to overcome that is a willing sacrifice. And then Philip Yancey, who actually quoted that quote in a book, goes on to kind of put a Christian or a Jesus spin on it. And he says... Uh, the balance of power shifted more than slightly that day on Calvary because of who it was that absorbed the evil. If Jesus of Nazareth had been one, been one more innocent victim, like King, Mandela, Havel, Solzhenitsyn, Katniss Everdeen, whoever, he would have made his mark in history and faded from the scene. No religion would have sprung up around him. What changed history was the disciples' dawning awareness It took the resurrection to convince them that God himself had chosen the way to weakness. The cross redefines God as one who is willing to relinquish power for the sake of love. Power, no matter how well-intentioned, tends to cause suffering. Love being vulnerable absorbs it. In a point of convergence on a hill called Calvary, God renounced the one for the sake of the other. So I've been thinking about from time to time, the cross, I mean, again, pretty much being raised in the church my whole life. And the question that would haunt me this week, this morning, is the question I mentioned earlier. Like, do I still want the cross? Do I want Jesus because he enters Jerusalem and it's got all fun and games, all the things that we're going to get out of it? Or do I want the Jesus on the cross because of the call to live that he offers? Because once again, the people in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, everybody there, they wanted a powerful person to defeat and destroy their enemies. And really, we all want that sort of power. We want to win, whether it's our March Madness pool, our football team, our, poly, our presidential candidate. We want to be on the winning side. It's almost like the sort of it feels good to be associated with winners. That's what we like. We want power. We want the promise of comfort, even if that means blaming some other group of people, someone else, and crucifying them. Hopefully we wouldn't go that far. 
But I think if I'm honest myself, that's how we want to live. And it makes sense to some degree. Work hard, fight for what's yours, protect yourself, screw anybody else that gets in the way. When we look at Jesus on the cross, he rejected all of that. He did not destroy his enemies. He let them destroy him. He did not promise victory. He called us to take up our cross. He redefined what power means by showing that it lies in weakness. He showed us that true love comes in reaching out to those who are other from us, who are different from us, people that we might not normally want to be a part of, reaching out to them in love. Really, he made dying that moment the greatest victory that's ever been won, greater than any NCAA tournament upset, greater than any victory Napoleon had in his military, greater than anything else, the greatest victory with a capital V, maybe just use all caps and a couple of exclamation points, victory, was Jesus dying on the cross that day. And once again, of course, without the resurrection, it wouldn't be that. So again, please, come next Sunday. But yeah, I've been thinking about the cross my whole life. And that's what I have to say about it this morning. I imagine that uh, I'll keep pondering the cross. If, if in 10 years from now, Pastor Tim is sick again and needs someone to fill in and we're still around, I may have a slightly different take on it. I'm sure I'm going to learn some more in the next 10 years, hopefully. But I would encourage you, uh, whether this is old stuff to you, that you know the stories of Jesus, or whether it's totally new to you, take some time this week to read like the Gospel of Mark, the last half of that, the stories of Jesus' uh, journey to Jerusalem and his crucifixion on the cross. Or read some of those other passages that I alluded to that have been meaningful to me in my life. And if you want more suggestions, I mean, I'll be around. You can ask me for other places you might want to read. But I just encourage each of us uh, this week, what Christians call kind of Holy Week, as we go from Jesus entering Jerusalem to the Good Friday, the crucifixion, to, to Easter Sunday, that we would spend some time just pondering this Jesus on the cross and what it means for us, what it demands, what he demands of us on the cross. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. That is something that is, is a big thing. It can mean a lot of things. It's challenging to us. It's amazing, but it's also challenging. I thank you. Um, I thank you for this community that we can have some good discussion. I just, again, love those questions at the end um, that are very challenging questions that we can have uh, a place to share those. And I pray ultimately, Lord, that we would come together here in this table and focus on you and be reminded of the fact that you are a loving God who even when we wanted nothing to do with you, even when we rebelled against you, turned away from you, even when we hung your son, God in the flesh, on the cross, that you did not turn away from us, that you kept pursuing us, that you love us, and that there's no thing we can do to make you not love us. So thank you once again for that. And may all that we say and do be for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.